Thank you for visiting the YourMindfulCoach.com podcast, now available on Stitcher and iTunes, as well as FM Player. This is Mark Balser. Today's podcast is on self-compassion. Our society often focuses so keenly on achievement and winning that we don't really allow ourselves time to explore and cultivate our inner experience. Through mindful practice, self-compassion can be a wonderful way to enhance your creativity, improve your connection with people, and live a wholehearted life. In this episode, I offer poetry, research, guided practices, and insight that should help you navigate a path to self-compassion. Self-compassion practice has become very meaningful in my own life after being introduced to it at a conference I nearly didn't attend several years ago. Kristen Neff's embodied approach to this topic excited and enlivened me. I've now taught and led retreats that include self-compassion practice and am excited to be offering fierce self-compassion as a two-session workshop later this month. June 20th and 27th in the western suburbs of Pennsylvania. Please see my website, yourmindfulcoach.com, for details, or send an email to mark, that's M-A-R-C, at yourmindfulcoach.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, whose research outcomes I discuss, visit www.centerformsc.com. You might also check out Kristen's wonderful TED Talk, The Space Between Self-Esteem and Self-Compassion. Thank you. So today I'd like to introduce you to a mindfulness approach using self-compassion. This whole talk is inspired by author and researcher Kristen Neff, who has both a wonderful TED Talk and a great book entitled Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. I hope I can infuse her teaching with my own experience and practice to make it engaging for you. So during the course of this talk, I'll include several reflections. If you're driving or otherwise doing more than just listening to this podcast, you might not want to close your eyes for them, but it shouldn't be any problem practicing them nonetheless. So here's my thesis. My thesis is that by treating yourself with self-compassion, you'll feel happier and perform better at whatever makes your heart sing. It will help you show up for life. And it's very closely tied to mindfulness because self-compassion requires practice. Just like when we're meditating and we find ourselves distracted and return our attention to our breath or our body. With self-compassion, the noticing that we're being critical or judgmental is a very important part of bringing ourselves back onto a path of kindness and gentleness. So as you listen, consider how building a practice of self-compassion might impact your experience. I'll examine how replacing the bad habit of self-judgment and criticism with an attitude of fierce self-compassion, regardless of the outcome, good or bad, how that might offer a gentler, more meaningful path characterized by resiliency 
and a renewed creativity in your life. We'll do this through connecting to three elements of self-compassion. Self-kindness, a sense of common experience as humans, and mindfulness. But first, we'll start by walking through how I came to self-compassion and dig into the landscape of self-esteem, perfectionism, and our culture's expectations for us. I hope some of what I have to share for you rings true, but please don't take this all as the gospel truth. I'm a beginning student of self-compassion myself, so I probably don't have it quite right, but for me it's been a tool a technology that has really added a lightness to my experience that you might connect with as well. So in a sense, this is a celebration, but it's not easy. I thought I'd start with a poem from poet Dana Falds. It's called Choosing Life. The downward spiral starts. Self-doubt and darkness vie for center stage, while I, the passive, drowning one, waiting for my demise. Just as I sink beneath the waves of my despair, a thought arises. Why go there? I've made this trip a thousand times, and it leads nowhere. I'm choosing life. The darkness lifts just a little. I'm choosing life. The downward spiral slows, then stops. I'm lifted up and buoyant now, not shrinking from the truth. Okay, I'm not perfect, and reality certainly doesn't look like what I'd choose. And maybe that's the only point, to ride the spirals down and up and make the choice. Of life. So I'd like to share a little bit about how I found my way to self-compassion. And this goes back several years, and in my professional life, I had very high expectations for myself, but also for my colleagues. I was demanding of them, though others might have used another word for it. And as I began a practice of mindfulness, I discovered a softening, a gentleness that really transformed my relationship with others and created connection that led to new collaborations and creativity. I started volunteering more and offering help and support to others when they asked for it. But it didn't have a huge impact on my internal experience of kindness. As part of a graduate school course, where my assignment was to explore self-compassion, I had people fill out a survey to gauge how people viewed my own self-compassion towards myself. One day I gave it to a woman named Teresa, who I had met just five minutes earlier. Naturally, she was confused, and she really didn't know me, but her response to the first item was telling. To the statement, Mark is hard on himself, Teresa responded, strongly agree. Wow, I just met her. How did she know? While I was connecting better with people in the world, I continued to lie in bed at night, beating myself up for whatever decisions, words, or actions I'd taken that day, ruminating on what I could have done better. 
And my eternal message was, you're not good enough. I found that while I was being kinder to others, I still generated an energy that I found myself dissipating through self-judgment and criticism. It wasn't until I discovered the self-compassion work of Kristen Neff, Christopher Germer, and Paul Gilbert that I was able to change my perspective in a more healthy way. Throughout this talk, you'll hear about their work, exciting new research, and a bit about my own path as I studied self-compassion. So perhaps I'll begin with the golden rule. You're probably all familiar with it uh, from the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And it is loosely translated into, do unto others as, as you would do unto yourself. Now, I'm pretty tough on myself. You might be as well. So perhaps we might reverse this sentence. What if it was do unto yourself as you would do unto others? There's some interesting potential implications for the obvious circular logic of these two statements. But think of this for a moment. If we're constantly beating up on ourselves internally, aren't we practicing to act this way in the world as well? And then when we look at the tone of our conversations in our communities, in our digital communication, in our news, in our political environment, uses much of the same language that we use when we beat ourselves up. So perhaps even broader than just working with ourselves, we might use self-compassion as a treatment practice, not just for ourselves, but to engage with the world more kindly. And I really see that to be true because I've never talked to a friend the way I talk to myself internally. So I'll back up a little bit and talk about self-esteem. Kristen Neff in her TED Talk really has a great perspective on self-esteem and the self-esteem movement that I grew up with. Um, And comparing that to self-compassion, these are both uh, ways to address our beliefs about our own worth, our own value. Um, So starting with self-esteem, there's something interesting about that, that self-esteem requires an element of specialness, of above averageness uh, for it to work. That creates splits, that creates a perception of differences, because it's relative. Uh, In order for me to have high self-esteem, Uh, There's an element of me needing to feel better than something or someone. Perhaps even more damaging is how self-esteem is conditional. So if I've been doing great, knocking off all these projects, getting lots of positive feedback, making lots of money, my self-esteem is probably relatively high. But then I run into trouble couple projects fail, have an argument with a friend, and all of a sudden my self-esteem drops like a rock. So that's a real challenge. Right when we need our self-esteem to help us, when we're kind of down and out, it abandons us. So that's a real challenge. What else does self-esteem do? Well, um, there's been a lot of research on this, and I really don't think it's conclusive. 
Um, however, there is this concern that we've created a generation of narcissists, people that think of no one but themselves. And that relative and conditional element uh, can really create biases and prejudice as we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. Another perhaps even more challenging issue is the concept of blame. So imagine the experience of a child. If, if the message you receive is that you're great, you're perfect, you're beautiful, you're special, when you make a mistake, well, either it suggests there's something wrong with you, or more likely, your initial reaction is to look outside yourself for someone to blame in order to maintain this picture of specialness above averageness that's critical to self-esteem being there. And this sets up a duality in our culture that we're struggling with, a duality that identifies good people and bad people. And unfortunately, it allows good people to get away with bad acts because they're covered by their goodness. That's enough with the sociology. So self-esteem has been associated with bullying and even impulse control issues as we get on this roller coaster of our self-esteem rising and falling. It's not to say some self-esteem isn't good. Uh, very low self-esteem is associated with all kinds of um, depression and anxiety and mental health issues. So we don't want to be that, that to be at zero, um, but we don't want to be whipping up and down the scale. And so self-compassion is another way of relating to yourself with kindness that has many of the same benefits of self-esteem without the side effects. It's a way to be not too hot, not too cold, just right. And I think the research is beginning to show that self-compassion has very positive effects on motivation, on performance, and our ability to feel secure and worthwhile in the world. This is particularly important with high-achieving individuals who have impossibly high standards. I, Remember my son coming to us a year or two ago. He's a very good athlete and things weren't going his way. And he came up to us very upset and said, People think I'm tough, but I'm really not. He appears to be resilient. And he is, because when he has a failure, he goes back to work. And he tries not to make that mistake again. But I think our society tends to define resilience too much as just the physical act of picking ourselves up after a disappointment and not enough on the emotional impact. So I think self-compassion is a really important component of true resiliency where we're not just picking ourselves up, but we're taking care of ourselves as well. And you can even see it in the cultural messages we receive. Uh, I'm looking at a list of books, uh, Ed Rendell, A Nation of Wusses, John Strasbaugh, Sissy Nation, and Hera Estroff Morano, A Nation of Wimps. And so when I offer self-compassion, there's this clear risk that uh, people think we're being a little bit too soft here. But I think that's really a misperception in a society that talks about failure not being an option and bemoans the everyone gets a trophy mentality. Self-compassion isn't about that at all. It's not about giving yourself a pass when you don't meet your other standards. It's really about treating yourself with kindness, regardless 
of the result. Uh, Kristen Neff uh, says, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. Self-compassion isn't about trying to fix things or set up an expectation that you should feel better. It's really just a way of relating to ourselves with kindness. There's a lot of negative effects of not being self-compassion, particularly with perfectionism. I I kind of think of perfectionism akin to self-esteem, just as imperfection is akin to self-compassion. There's really a recognition with self-compassion that we're going to make mistakes. But the reality is, if we aren't making some mistakes, we probably aren't living a genuine, authentic life. Uh, We're finding that perfectionists are really struggling with a fear of failure. And that causes us to procrastinate and not try new things. Hey, if a new risk might lead to failure, we're a perfectionist, why even bother? So our creativity is limited. There's also big impacts on our stress, our health, the tension and tightness and pain that we feel in our own bodies. We hold our issues in our tissues. A lack of resilience, just an unchecked criticism and self-judgment that some people wear as a badge of honor, workaholic mentality. So we need to address our own emotional experience and take care of ourselves. So how do we act with self-compassion? Well, when I polled my friends, they told me they say no. They sleep late. They're kind to others. They don't sweat the small stuff. They don't let their kids get to them. They read. And of course, they eat chocolate. But certainly the what is easier than the how. When I have a friend who's in need, I might say, don't be so hard on yourself. You're only human. Just relax. But... It's easier said than done in the moment, isn't it? Well, they're studying self-compassion for all kinds of things. College students, romantic relationship, academic achievement, eating disorders, aging, loneliness, stress. And we're getting some really neat results. And how does it work? Well, there's a best practice that this mindful self-compassion approach falls into, it's very, very simple. We first identify a negative habit. Then we find a way to pause, to stop. And we offer in its place a positive habit and repeat that over and over again. It's really the basis of mindfulness and applies to self-compassion as well. So as I said, Kristen Neff wrote the book on self-compassion, and she identifies three components. The first is self-kindness, the ability to soothe yourself. So perhaps we'll take a moment to reflect, and if you're in a position where you can close your eyes, you might do that. Just find a comfortable posture, allowing yourself to breathe naturally, and we'll experiment with how we might soothe ourselves in times of need.
And our body has a system to manage this. Our autonomic nervous system has two parts to it, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's um, what gets triggered when we're either in a flight or fight response or the alternative, the relaxation response, the rest and digest state. So we'll just experiment with that for a moment. On the, on the next in-breath, I'll ask you to breathe in. And as you breathe in, clench your fists tightly. So breathing in and clenching your fists and holding that for as long as you can, noticing how you feel it in the body. When you can't hold that breath anymore, go ahead and exhale. You might notice how that felt both the tension and the release. And this time on the inhale, I'd like you to lift your shoulders all the way up to your ear, tensing them. So breathing in, bring your shoulders up as long as you can hold the breath. And then release. And noticing what comes up for you now. this time on the in-breath, we'll scrunch up our face. So breathe in, scrunching up your face as tight as you can. And release. And again, noticing how that feels for you. And just for fun, one last time, we'll do all three of those together. Breathing in and tensing every part of our body. We breathe in. Holding it. And then exhaling. So we might liken that in-breath to our fight or flight, our sympathetic response. And that out-breath, the exhale to our rest and digest, relaxation response. Again, closing your eyes, we might experiment with different ways to soothe ourselves. Perhaps raising your hands and putting them over your chest or your heart. And taking a few breaths. Noticing how that feels. This is the opposite of the fight or flight response, which was so useful to our ancestors when they were struggling to physically survive, but is not as useful today when most of our threats are emotional and not so immediately physically threatening to our survival. Perhaps move your hands now so your right hand is on your left shoulder, your left hand is on your right shoulder, just giving yourself a gentle hug, noticing how that feels. Letting your hands release and perhaps just gently stroking your shoulder or your upper arm with one of your hands. 
Noticing how that physically soothing might affect how you feel in your mind and your body. Allowing yourself to open your eyes as I continue with the talk. So self-kindness is the first of Neff's three components of self-compassion. The second is a sense of common humanity. There's a wonderful quote from Einstein who said, a human being is part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And then the third piece of self-compassion is mindfulness. That having some level of awareness, trying to limit the judgment of that, is the only way we can really know that we need to take care of ourselves. Because if you aren't aware of that you need it, you're never going to be able to apply these steps of self-compassion. So a poem, as we enter a deeper dive into each of these three elements on kindness, it's by Naomi Shahabnai. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So digging into kindness a little bit more, we've already experimented with self-soothing of our body. And there's another practice of self-kindness, the loving-kindness meditation that I thought we'd reflect on for a few moments. And in a loving-kindness meditation, we offer kindness to ourselves and others as we 
visualize, practice as we repeat phrases to ourselves, offering happiness and health, safety and peace as we go along. And through this meditative practice, we'll expand our circle of care to include not only ourselves, but loved ones, neutral people, difficult people, and all living things. So why don't we practice for the next four or five minutes? Again, finding a comfortable position in your chair. And if you're able, opening your eyes. I'll walk you through the practice. Whatever works for you. There's no certain way to sit. No certain way to do this. And if you find it's not working for you, please just stop. Ignore the instructions. Open your eyes. You might even fast forward a couple minutes if it's not for you. So I'll begin by ringing the bell. What I'll do is I'll offer some phrases that you can silently repeat to yourself. So allowing yourself to breathe naturally. You might start by visualizing yourself sitting in this chair. Allowing for the joys and disappointments, the happiness and the sadness that's all part of your experience. Embodying those feelings. Then offering the following phrases to yourself. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be at peace. May I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe, and may I be at peace. As we continue the loving kindness, you might bring to mind a loved one, someone for who caring and compassion come naturally to us. Might be a relative or a friend or even a a pet. Again, offering these same phrases to this being. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at peace. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at peace.
I'm now bringing to mind a neutral person, someone who might be a distant acquaintance, or perhaps someone you encounter in your day, perhaps the barista at a coffee shop, bus driver, someone for whom you have a neutral perspective, and offering them these same phrases. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at peace. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at peace. Now bringing to mind someone you might find a little bit more difficult, a challenging person in your life. Certainly not the most challenging person, but someone for whom this warmth doesn't come as naturally. You might not even feel these phrases, but knowing deep down that if this person had these things, they probably wouldn't be giving you such a tough time. Offering to this person, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you be at peace. May you be happy, may you be healthy. May you be safe. May you be at peace. Now expanding this circle further still to include all beings, all beings on this planet. All beings deserve these things. And so offering to them and including ourselves. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we be safe. May we be at peace. happy. May we be healthy. May we be safe. May we be at peace. As we close the meditation, you might find yourself more relaxed, more confused, calm, or 
a little bit frazzled and that's all okay. Perhaps bringing intention towards kindness as we continue with our day. You might take a moment to reflect on that practice, allowing yourself some gentleness for what might have come up. It's possible you couldn't feel or wish any of those things at all, and that's okay. This practice is about experiencing feelings and slowly inclining ourselves towards kindness at whatever pace it comes. So this is a practice that can be done every day for a minute, for 20 minutes, uh, and with time, real transformation takes place. So coming back to self-kindness, there's another approach called compassionate writing, where you're called on to write about a challenge in your life. And at some point in the exercise, you're asked to shift the perspective to that of a close friend and how they might write about that same situation. This was done in a study um, that's very exciting. It's called Self-Compassion Facilitates Creative Originality. So what they did was they took uh, college students and um, they had them write about a negative personal experience from the past. Uh, the prompt was, think about a negative event that they experienced in high school or college that made them feel badly about themselves, something that involved failure, humiliation, or rejection. And these authors, uh, Zabalina and Robinson, randomly signed a control group and a group that was designed to induce self-compassion. So about halfway through this writing experiment, about five minutes in, the participants assigned to the self-compassion condition were given three additional prompts uh, for their writing designed to encourage a self-compassionate orientation. The first prompt asked individuals to list ways in which others might, might experience these similar failures or rejections. The second prompt asked individuals to write a paragraph expressing understanding, kindness, and concern. And a third prompt asked individuals to view the event in an objective, detached manner, as if from a third-person experience. And the results they found were quite compelling. Uh, among individuals that were kind of scored as self-judgmental individuals, the creativity of these individuals on a creativity test that both the control group and the self-compassion group were given uh, rose outstandingly. Uh, the group who had received the self-compassion phrases scored over 50% better on creativity than the control group that hadn't gotten those prompts. So if you'd like to try that out, I have on my podcast a seven-minute mindful, compassionate exercise, writing exercise that you might check out. And so the second piece of self-compassion is common humanity, the ability to remind yourself of your shared human condition. This was a real challenge for me. Uh, whenever I made a mistake, I thought I was the only person who ever had made that mistake before. And that can be a real problem. That can be a block to empathy. If I'm the only person that ever makes these mistakes, I'm certainly not going to be able to see when other people are making those mistakes and need some care or some compassion. So Christopher Germer writes about this 
in his book, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, he says, when we experience misfortune, we're likely to feel we're the only person in the world who's suffering like that. We also tend to feel shame about our misfortune, as if we alone were responsible for it. Shame isolates. When our intention emotions subside and we see the situation from a wider angle, we're likely to discover that everything happens as a result of a universe of causes, rather than exclusively due to me and my mistake. All events are flowing and interconnected, at least to a small extent. Our experience is shared by others. That realization of common humanity brings relief from feeling alone and isolated. And again, uh, there's research here on how self-compassion that, and that sense of a common humanity actually improves our motivation. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, if I'm, if I'm self-compassionate, if I'm easy on myself, then I'll be less motivated to act. I really need to push myself, be hard on myself. And the research certainly doesn't seem to report it uh, to support that. Uh, so here's a study from UC Berkeley um, where um, it was by uh, Brains and Chen, Self-Compassion Increases Self-Improvement Motivation. And what they did was they had college students take a 10-item uh, SAT-style antonyms test, and it was hard. The average score was 4 out of 10, so those folks didn't do so well. And so what they did next was they split the participants into three groups. One was a control group. Um, and what they did was they allowed them the study guide or the answer sheet and allowed them to study for as long as they wanted. So the control group got no additional prompts. They just said, you get to retake the test. Here's the test sheet. You can study as long as you want. A second group, a self-esteem group, was given the prompt. If you had difficulty with the test you just took, try not to feel bad about yourself. You must be intelligent if you got into Berkeley. And then they were sent off to study for as long as they wanted. A third group was the self-compassion group. And their prompt was, if you have difficulty with the test you just took, you're not alone. It's common for students to have difficulty with tests like this. If you feel bad about how you did, try not to be too hard on yourself. So some might argue that that kind of prompt might diminish one's motivation. Oh, like this is hard for everybody. I'm not even going to bother. But that's not what they found. Uh, they found that the control group studied for about five minutes or so before retaking the test. And the self-esteem group studied about 33% longer than the control group. But it was the self-compassion group that studied the most of all, studying over seven and a half minutes or 50% more than the control group. And of course, this study time correlated very nicely with performance. So it's, it's neat to see how self-compassion might be a positive factor towards motivation and also performance. The author Elizabeth Gilbert, um, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, uh, shared something very neat the other day that I heard called barefoot dignity, which sounds a lot like self-compassion to me. You know, we as humans are, are entitled to these things, compassion and kindness, care and, other, and empathy. And we're entitled to this not only from others, but also from ourselves. It's our, it's our birthright. So here's what Elizabeth says. 
Uh, she's talking about a, a natural entitlement that's different from a kind of a narcissistic entitlement. She writes, the entitlement that I'm talking about is the entitlement that has this sort of dignity. I call it barefoot dignity. You're just standing in your personhood, in your body, and you're not saying, I'm the greatest. You're saying, I am. I am a member of this society. I'm a child of God. I'm a human being on my path, and I want to tap into the most interesting and fascinating part of human consciousness, which is creativity. And I have the right to do that. I have the right to pursue that. I have the right to explore that. I have the right to engage in this, even if I don't have the proper kind of training, even if I don't have a permission slip from the principal's office, even if I don't have a degree, even if I don't have the backing of the right sorts of people, even if I don't have the right contacts or live in the right city. All of those things are erased by the kind of entitlement that I'm talking about, which says, I just want to do this because I want to play with the mystery and I want to engage in this too, as my ancestors did, as your ancestors did. This is our shared human experience. So that sense of common humanity was really important to me as I pursued this path. And so the final piece of Neff's components of self-compassion is mindfulness. Perhaps you could define that as awareness without judgment. And if you're listening to this, you probably already know a thing about mindfulness already. And the idea here is that by identifying our circumstances, we might be inspired to change them. So as part of my own journey, I did a school project where I'd set an alarm every hour and score myself on a scale of 1 to 10 based off how self-compassionate I was being now, how critical I was being, how isolated or connected I felt. And every day, every hour, I would score myself for two or three weeks. And what ultimately happened was I just stopped. If I was beating myself up and seeing every hour that I was being self-critical, eventually it was almost like I was embarrassed or fatigued. And I began to yearn for something new. I could ask myself, what would it be like to stop judging myself, to instead be kind to myself? Am I willing to try that out for a bit? And so that's what I did. Probably won't surprise you that Kristen Neff and her colleague Chris Germer have integrated the mindfulness, the self-kindness, and common humanity practices into an eight-week class on self-compassion. And they've really had incredible results. What they found in their study work is that scales that measure life satisfaction and happiness rise very meaningfully after doing this for just eight weeks. Uh, the results they got in 2002 were increases of 24% for life satisfaction, 13% for happiness, and really meaningful declines in depression and anxiety and avoidance of 20% or so. One thing that's perhaps even more exciting to me is that in the year following this eight-week course, the life satisfaction scores increased an additional 10%. And I think there's something to that, because as we first explore self-compassion, we'll probably find that we're really being hard on ourselves. And that might make us feel worse before we feel better. And in my own experience, I saw 
very similar results to what I just reported. My sense of isolation and common humanity was, was really not so great. And I went from being basically a zero on the scale of sensing common humanity to write about the average. And my family noticed a difference um, in doing the same self-compassion scales. Um, I sense myself more self-compassionate and the scaled score reflected that as well. But even my family, my wife, my sons saw me as 10% or so more self-compassionate. So as we approach the close of this talk, I thank you for bearing with me. Uh, I'd like to share one last mindfulness practice offered by Kristen Neff, and it's called a self-compassion break. And we might do this as a reflection, just taking a minute to close your eyes. And what you can do is think of a situation in your life that's a bit difficult, that might be causing you stress or discomfort. And you might even notice how it feels in your body, what sensations or thoughts or feelings come up for you. And in a self-compassion break, it's much like the loving kindness where you offer phrases to yourself. And so the first is offering the sentence, this is a moment of suffering. This is a moment of suffering. And so this is the mindfulness component, being aware that you're having a hard time. And next, offering the phrase, suffering is part of the human condition. Suffering is part of the human condition. So again, a reminder that you're not alone in this. It's not just you. And then next, offering the phrase, may I be kind to myself in this moment of suffering. May I be kind to myself in this moment of suffering. May I give myself the compassion I need right now. May I give myself the compassion I need right now. And this can come in many forms. It could be that physical self-soothing. It could be offering yourself loving kindness. Most important, offering some gentleness for when you really can't snap out of that difficult mindset. So you might close your, might open your eyes and I'll just remind you of my thesis that I shared at the start, which is by treating yourself with compassion, you might feel happier and perform better at whatever makes your heart sing. This really only comes with practice and opportunities that will come in abundance in your life. You can practice this formally or informally throughout your day. And please check out the resources on my website, Your Mindful Coach, as well as self-compassion.org, which is Kristen Neff's website. So a couple of brief conclusions here. I think that self-compassion really helps you accept that you'll sometimes fail and that's okay. My hope is that this understanding emboldens us all to take risks, to be creative, but also flexible when things aren't quite going our way. So thank you for listening. 
please let me know what you think and check out resources, including an upcoming workshop on self-compassion I'm offering. And I wouldn't be talking to you today without the insight and wisdom of these great teachers I've had the honor of seeing and hearing from. Kristen Neff, Christopher Germer, as well as my many teachers like Jonathan Faust and Jack Cornfield who have brought me to this practice. So I'll close with a comment from meditation teacher Pema Chodron. Many of you have your own existing meditation practices and might be able to relate to this closing thought as we offer self-compassion to our own everyday practice as well as our mindfulness and meditation practice. Unlocking a softness. Even after many years, many of us continue to practice harshly. We practice with guilt, as if we're going to be excommunicated if we don't do it right. We practice so we won't be ashamed of ourselves and with fear that someone will discover what a bad meditator we really are. The old joke is that a Buddhist is someone who is either meditating or feeling guilty about not meditating. There's not much joy in that. Maybe the most important teaching is to lighten up and relax. It's such a huge help in working with our crazy, mixed-up minds to remember that we, what we're doing is unlocking a softness that is, is in us and letting that softness spread. We're letting it blur the sharp corners of self-criticism and complaint.